Well, good morning, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. I hope you are well-rested and corona-free. I also hope you are in the company of family, friends, or maybe even your community group as we share God's Word today. Let me say a special thank you to our staff who pulled together to make this online experience possible. It takes a lot of moving parts, and everybody stepped up to the plate. When I got away to plan out the sermons for 2020, I felt the Lord prompting me in a certain direction with a certain word. The word is kingdom. Did you know that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else? When Jesus talked about the kingdom, what he was proclaiming was that God is coming to reign in the hearts of his people. God would now be knowable and touchable in the person of Christ. God the Spirit would now dwell in the lives of his people as we live as members of his kingdom. And as kingdom members, our values will look different than the world's values. Our relationships will look different. The way we use our money is different. We have different views of sexuality and race. So for a good part of 2020, my sermons are going to focus a lot on this one word, kingdom. We just finished a series called Your Kingdom Come, where we learned how to be kingdom-minded with our prayers, how to talk to our king. And when we pray, your kingdom come, what we're doing is making ourselves available to be a means to that end. Now today we start a series called Kingdom Values, where we are going to look at those things that are important to our king, and so they should be important to us. So for the next month, we are going to focus on what the church should be focused on if we want to consider ourselves a kingdom-minded church. And these kingdom values that we're going to talk about are nicely packaged in one verse in the Old Testament. The book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So let me encourage you over the next few weeks to read the book of Micah. It's only seven chapters long. Now, Micah lived in the 8th century BC, and it was a unique time in which he lived. The kingdom of Israel was now two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And they were both being threatened by an empire called the Assyrians. And Micah was sent by God to show them that the real reason why they were facing the threat. God wanted them to see that their problem was not the military strength of the other nations, it was the moral weakness of their own nation. Both Israel and Judah were vulnerable to being overthrown on the outside because of the way they were treating the most vulnerable on the inside. Now that's big. Never once in the book of Micah does God say, the reason you're in trouble is because your enemies are too strong. It is always, you are too weak. And right after God says, this is what I care about in Micah 6.8, God says, this is what I'm seeing instead. Micah 6, 9. Fear the Lord if you are wise. His voice calls to everyone in Jerusalem. The armies of destruction are coming. The Lord is sending them. What shall I say about the homes of the wicked filled with treasures gained by cheating? What about the disgusting practice of measuring out grain with dishonest measures? How can I tolerate your merchants who use dishonest scales and weights? The rich among you have become wealthy through extortion and violence. Your citizens are so used to lying that their tongues can no longer tell the truth. Did you catch that? Never once does Micah criticize the people for not going to the temple, for not bringing their tithes, for not offering sacrifices. They were still focusing on their religious rituals, 
but it meant nothing to God because of the way they were preying on people and using people the rest of the week. So God decides to do something strange. He decides to take his own people to court. Now you think Judge Judy can be harsh? You ain't seen nothing yet. Micah 6.1, listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. Now, I've never been taken to court by anyone, and the last person I want to be taken to court by is God. And God calls the mountains and as his witnesses because they have been there for generations, long enough to see how the nation has disobeyed badly, and long enough to testify to the faithfulness of God. Now, God makes his case against his people in Micah 6, 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me, for I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed? And how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. Here's what God says. I've been nothing but good and faithful to you. And here's just a sampling how. I led you out of slavery into freedom from Egypt. I gave you strong leaders. I turned curses into blessings for you. Now, why is God starting his case with this argument? Because when we lose focus of how God has treated us, how we think we should treat other people starts to get blurry. Let me repeat that, okay? When we lose focus of how God has treated us, how we think we should treat other people starts to get blurry. This is why the scripture calls us to remember time and time again everything the Lord has done for us. It says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus. There's always this call to remember what God has done for us so we can extend the same to other people. Now the nation knows the Lord has a strong case against them. And so they respond with a plea bargain to God. Listen what's said in Micah 6.6. 6. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? Do you hear what they're saying? God, what will it take for you to drop the charges against us? What can we do to get this case thrown out of court? And did you notice that everything they listed are things that take place inside the temple? Will you drop the charges, God, if we ramp up church service? So with all of that as the background, listen to this verse, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It has nothing to do with going to church, but how you lived outside the walls of church. God says, not only do I act good, I define good, and I have told you what is good over and over in my definition. 
Justice, mercy, humility, repeat. Justice, mercy, humility, repeat. Everybody at home, say it with me. Justice, mercy, humility, repeat. Some of you literature buffs might recognize the name of Theodore Geisel. He was challenged one day in 1960 to write a children's book and only use a vocabulary of 50 words. Someone wagered him a $50 bet to do this. Now, you don't know him as Theodore Geisel. You know him as Dr. Seuss. And after a year, he produced that book using only 50 words. That book was called Green Eggs and Ham, and it sold over 8 million copies. And you would think that Seuss would tell you that 50 words was a real constraint, but he actually attested that it produced greater creativity because when he had to focus on what was important, it made him a better writer. And that's exactly what God is saying. Focus on what matters most. Justice, mercy, humility, repeat. God is saying that good is so much more than being in the right place. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that it's not good to go to church, just the opposite. One of our next steps is to worship regularly. And I've never met a sold out, devoted follower of Jesus who wasn't part of a local church. What I am saying is that there is a way of going to church that isn't good. If your main focus is just going to a place, then your priorities are out of place. That's what God's saying. A lot of people think if I go to a certain place and spend an hour or two there and give God his due, then I can do whatever I want the rest of the week. What God wants is for what we do in this place to inform and shape how we're going to live in every other place we find ourselves the rest of the week. Here's what God is saying. If what we are doing in here at church isn't making any difference out there, then what we are doing in here isn't doing anybody any good. Let me say that again. If what we are doing in church isn't making any difference outside the walls of the church, then what we are doing in here isn't doing anybody any good. And that's one of the reasons we get together. Did you know that? We don't get together just to mark up our Bibles or to cram our craniums with more knowledge. We gather to encourage each other to be do-gooders. Many of us know that verse in Hebrews 10.25 that says, don't forsake the assembling together. But did you ever read the verse right in front of it? Why do we not forsake coming together? Here's why. Verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's why we come together, to encourage each other, to spur one another on to love and to do good. And what is good? Justice, mercy, humility, repeat. Now, Micah had a contemporary named Isaiah. They lived at the exact same time, and Isaiah addressed the same problems as well. Let me read to you from the very first chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 1, verse 11. What makes you think, I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? 
I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asks you to parade my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon or the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. Now, hold on a minute. God, aren't you the one who told them to bring the sacrifices, to observe the festivals and days of fasting? So why are you hating what you commanded and told them to do? Look at Isaiah 1, starting in verse 15. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphans. Fight for the rights of the widows. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? God says, you think you can treat people any way you want during the week and then show up and go through some religious exercise and I'm cool with that? He has shown you what is good. Justice, mercy, humility, repeat. God says that good isn't just about being in the right place. It is ultimately about treating people right, especially focusing on people who hardly ever get focused on. Folks, this is why as a church, we do things like Kids Hope, why we cook at the soup kitchen, why we are exploring in prison ministry, why we have a benevolence fund, why we travel thousands of miles to impoverished nations to minister and to love and help those who've been marginalized and largely forgotten by the rest of the world. This is what made the faith of Israel so different from the other ancient religions. The ancient gods hung out with the elites, the kings, the generals, the princes, the rich, and the powerful. And here comes Israel with this countercultural God who actually stands with and for the most marginalized on earth. So let me show you just a few verses to reinforce what we're talking about. Deuteronomy 10:18. He, meaning God, ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. Psalm 146, 7. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and the widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. Here we've got one more. Zechariah 7, 9, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says, judge fairly and show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor, and do not scheme against each other. Now, I hope none of us ever gets taken to court by God, but if you do, don't you dare try to make the case that God has been unclear about what he wants. Jesus was born among the poor. His entire life he identified with the marginalized, and he ministered most to the people who were most unnoticed. 
And the church needs to own this and say this and do this. Not too long ago, the headlines told of a young man who went on a shooting spree in El Paso, Texas. Do you remember that? And he said the reason he did it was to prevent a Hispanic invasion. That somehow in his warped mind, he sees people of a different race who speak a different language, as that is the place where you find the enemy. But did no one ever tell him that that is where you really find Jesus? Jesus made it clear what, hum what good looks like. Justice, mercy, humility. Repeat. Finally, Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's masterpiece, and he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things that he has planned for us long ago. And why did God plan for us to be do-gooders? It's real simple. Because when his children are doing good, it makes the Father look real good. That's why Satan does not want our walk to line up with our talk. Because when our walk is nothing but talk, nobody can see, really see God living in us. Let me end by sharing one of my favorite stories that reinforces this point. The story is told of a young orphan who was wandering the streets of an English town that had just been devastated by German bombers. One of the few businesses that hadn't been bombed was a bakery. The smell of fresh donuts permeated the air. An army GI went into the bakery and ordered some donuts. On his way out, he saw the orphan's nose pressed against the window and he asked the boy, son, would you like one of those donuts? The boy said, boy, would I? The GI went back in, ordered a dozen donuts and came out and gave the boy the entire dozen. The boy gave the soldier a look of gratitude mixed with a look of bewilderment, and his only response was to ask him a question as he said, Mister, are you God? This is exactly what Jesus said. Let your light shine among people that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We don't do good for salvation, but from salvation. Not to be saved, but because we are saved. Because we are members of a kingdom, not of this world. God bless. Thanks again for joining us today, everybody. We hope that you were blessed by your time together, whether you're alone, with friends, family, or your community group. We also want to point you to another part of our website that has some questions dealing with the message that you heard today to help you ponder and internalize God's word. Again, thanks for joining in, and we hope to see you soon at church. Keep watching our uh, social media feeds as well as our website to inform you about when we will be meeting again here at Bachelor Creek Campus. Take care.